Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You don't make up for your sins in the church. You do it in the streets. You do it at home. The rest is bullshit, and you know it. The great and has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Just a very bad wizard. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, presidential hopeful RFK Jr. suggested that the COVID-19 virus may have been targeted to spare Chinese people and Ashkenazi Jews. Are you mad that he beat you to that theory? (laughs) I mean, no, he didn't suggest it. He was just saying some people have suggested it. Also, like... (laughs) In his defense, because I know he's a threat to your kind of ruling class, business as usual politics. <laughs> yes, the I Kennedys was, always are. <laughs> I think he was trying to say that, you know, it did seem to affect certain ethnic groups less than others. And then kind of spun it into some weird theory. But like, <laughs> what do you think of the theory? Why would, who, whose agenda is it to spare Chinese people and Ashkenazi Jews? Like, just those two. I mean, I don't think that it did, right? Like, China was harder hit than probably any other country. Like, it's like, it seems on the face of it absurd, yeah. I'm saying, put yourself in the head of the person who buys this theory. Like, what is this organization that wants to disproportionately kill everybody except Chinese people and Ashkenazi Jews? There's not some huge alliance that well, I'm aware I mean, of. Let, I mean, I would. I'll just, I'll just tell you then. Yeah. It's obviously the elders of Zion and Chinese scientists working in concert to try to eliminate the blacks and the Mexicans. <laughs> and the Jews basically had to make a deal with the devil. You know, they're like, well, we don't like the China people, but we need them for our science. So let's do it. It's like Winston Churchill uh, <laughs> making a deal with uh, Stalin. That's right. To fight Hitler. Yeah. No, but it is interesting. You know, this is this is a, 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 a interesting lesson in taking what probably is true, right? That it was, well, it just is true that COVID disproportionately affected. I'm not saying people of color because I think like there are plenty of like people of color that don't count in that group of people who was adversely affected. But the obvious answer to that is, well, health is just worse than a lot of people because of socioeconomic status, and that just happens to overlap a lot. Um, or there are certain pre-existing conditions that, say, Black Americans are more likely to have. But he goes straight to like, well, I mean, genetically engineered viruses to target certain ethnicities. <laughs> it's like the lack of parsimony. This yeah. just occurred to me, and now maybe I might be on board. Uh, and this is not going to be anti-Semitic like Dave's thing. But what's the, <laughs> what's the one thing that all Jewish guys love? Their mother. 
<laughs> okay, but after their mother. Uh, Asian girls. <laughs> right? Well, so if it's a world where it's just like Jewish guys and Chinese people, they're going to be... The Jewish wives were coming into the lab and going, what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I just sounded like George Costanza's mom. <laughs> I don't know what I sound like. <laughs> ah, makes sense. Makes sense. The food also, I guess, is an obvious overlap. No, there's some legs to this. I can see this. But this is not going to be a topic that we... <laughs> use for our patreon listener selected episode because no. nobody suggested it it's because well it's obviously because it's clearly a topic that you should use for your overton windows podcast <laughs> this theory, this is like, where you shuffle i yeah this like <laughs> at first i thought it was crazy and now I, i'm like right in the middle of like reasonable discourse Right now, it's just about which ethnicities. Yeah, the, uh, the this is why I like that you have a, a new podcast miniseries because I I get to shuffle off all of your uh, controversial political opinions too. It's like a, I'm outsourcing it to Robert. Right? <laughs> right, you can talk about this on that on that thing. Uh, we are going to talk about a topic that is voted on by our beloved Patreon supporters. And all of our Patreon supporters have given us well over 100 uh, suggested topics, and we've had to narrow them down to some finalists. Neither of us have talked, like, at all, actually, about, like, which ones we want to pick. So right. this is this segment is, we narrowed down to five or six finalists that are $5 and up supporters can vote on. And so here's the thing. So, yeah, like you said, like 140 comments, not all of those, obviously, suggestions, but oh, well over 100 suggestions, more, I think, than we've ever gotten. We usually have, like, I don't know, at least three two or three overlapping. Yeah. yeah, two or three. And this time, I'm actually a little worried that we're not going to have any overlap. So, so uh, over or under? If it's over or under two and a half, I would go under. But if it's over or under one and a half, I would go over, assuming that we can each bring like seven to the table. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With seven, with seven, I'll go. I'm still gonna go under. Like under two, two and a half. Under. Sorry. Under one and a half. You're gonna go under. Under one and a half. Yeah. You'll go over. All right. We but now you can we just not choose any, <laughs> any of them. Yeah. We didn't put anyone. <laughs> no. It turns out you go first. Nope. Yeah, wasn't no, on mine. No. No. We but should say what our main segment is about because we already stole an idea from from our listeners. Ah, uh, yeah, we did the Kakula. How do you pronounce it? I don't know. All I know is that the E's for sure, for sure, is pronounced Kakula. Yeah, the Kakula problem. The Kakula problem. Kakula. Yeah. Cormac McCarthy month continues on Very Bad Wizards as we delve into his one piece of nonfiction writing. It's amazing. It That's is. Amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. Like he's a different, different breed. And we haven't talked about that either, but he knocked it out of the park, like I think. Yeah, you know? totally. Like. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, uh, but but first we gotta we gotta figure this out. So you want to go first? Sure. I'll start with my my uh, top my top candidate for overlap. Like if I had to guess, and it would be Farid Anvari's suggestion. Um, he suggested actually a couple of different chapters from William James's A Pluralistic Universe. Uh, and the one that I uh, 
picked, which I didn't write down anything other than it was chapter six. Yeah, um, uh, I yeah. did write a little more down. This is overlap. I'm so glad. Like, I'm surprised. Yeah. You, like, you knew this would be on mine, right? Uh, oh, I, I figured, yeah. I strongly recommend lecture six in which he presents Henri Bergson view on the limits of concepts and thus logic and rationality for revealing truths about the nature of reality. Kind of perhaps connected to what we'll be discussing in the second segment. So yeah, uh, I do. Yeah, this sounds great. Okay. Like everything yeah. he said about it and he wrote a lot about it sounds right up my alley and I'm glad that it was. Yeah. And uh, thank you for Reed for actually writing. He wrote like a pretty in-depth description of each yeah. of these. So like, yeah. All right. I'll go. Okay. This is my candidate for one that you probably won't pick, but <laughs> it was the most popular. Like if you just go by hearts by far of any oh, of the yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeff Lord suggested both of you take a healthy dose of magic mushrooms, five milligrams maybe, and hit record. You know, anytime I would absolutely <laughs> do that. There's like you, I would fly to Ithaca and do it. Um, this but. this is such a what do you call it when you pander to the audience? Uh, this is like he knows he knows that this is going to get votes. He knows it's going to get your vote. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, you can't put this on the uh, <laughs> on the finalists unless you're willing to do it. We exactly. have another way of doing something like this that yeah, we could maybe look into as well. So um, let's just say it's been percolating. It's uh, been percolating. I think they're, they're, I've definitely made a little headway. I would love to do an episode where, you know, we just take some Vicodin. So if listeners have any, <laughs> send it to And us. we'll just be like, that was cool. <laughs> Remember when we were in Vancouver? That was pretty cool. <laughs> that was awesome. Okay. Um, All right. My, my next one is... I'm getting to the point where enough people have said this enough times that that I think I'm just going to watch it anyway. But it is to do an episode on the anime TV series Neon Genesis Evangelion, as I believe it's pronounced. You know, I've never really looked into it. I don't know that you would be down for an anime, but let me just uh, tell you one of the things that I was reading about it that was um, maybe up your alley. And it, it was about the th in the themes and this is just from the wikipedia it just has a lot of mystical themes apparently so like kabbalah and uh, so it says series has been described as a deconstruction of the mecha genre and it's and it features archetypal imagery derived from shinto cosmology as well as jewish and christian mystical traditions including midrashic tales and kabbalah the psychoanalytic accounts of human behavior put forward by freud and jung are also prominently featured mm -hmm. okay this sounds good yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you seen so, it? Like, you haven't seen it? No, I haven't. My daughter has seen it, but uh, I'll look into that. Yeah, so it's a it's always a commitment to watch a whole. TV. How but long? I, apparently, there's one season on Netflix. That's uh, that's in the running. Wander Mute suggested something from Stanislaw Lem uh, and Solaris is. That's exactly what I had that I avoided doing because I knew there was a big chance of overlap, but I've already lost. But the, yeah, you already lost. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, we always have a little overlap. So I think yeah. I would love to do the novel Solaris. And then yeah, we could too. also like incorporate Tarkovsky's movie if we wanted to or not. Um, yeah. That, I remember like a little bit ago after we did, what were we doing that we were talking about? Solaris? But I read Solaris and watched Solaris. Oh, I you read it? Solaris. You've yeah, already read yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. I did, yeah, I've already read it. And not that long ago, of course, I would reread it. But the differences between the two are super interesting. 
between the like the the takes on. on I would do, do, like, yeah. just do a, like a mega like both both of them. We can talk about them in conversation with each other. That'd be very yeah. cool. Yeah, cool. I don't know if that's been on before. It might have been, but it might have been. Maybe now, like if we add, like, we'll watch and read. Right. Um, right. Okay. So let's see. Maybe there's more overlap than we thought. Uh, there are a couple of like essays or short stories that people suggested that I just hadn't heard of. So I just did a little bit of digging into them. And this one is from Federico Alvarez, Walter Benjamin's essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. No way. I am so <laughs> surprised that? that this, no, I, I like, I, I had it in my like, kind of, I want to mention it, okay. but I didn't think there would be any chance that. Uh, yeah, it looks interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's a, like a Marxist. Yeah. Like I know of it more than I know it. So I looked into it today. I, I think we should put it in our bank. Um, yeah, if not on this list, I think both of us are interested in a lot of the things that is, you know, he's digging into there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just a question. Can we understand what, what the fuck he's talking about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, okay. This is one I don't think you'll have, but Bruce all one suggested this, uh, fiction podcast called within the wires which is something that I actually have already listened to. Um, the last time when we I went camping with my daughter, we always have a podcast, like this kind of ser- podcast series that's fiction that we listen to. Some of them are really good. This one was very cool. We only listened to, I think, the first three seasons, but each season is its own story. It's interconnected, but he, like we could just do season one, which I thought was kind of brilliant. And the, you know, unfortunately it's, it's very much one you wouldn't want to spoil because there's all sorts of reveals about the world and about the particular narrative, but the way it's told as Bruce all one talks about is really cool. The first season is just these ostensibly anyway, they're just meditation tapes that somebody is supposed to play in this room and you like every all the details get filled in but it always stays with that format that it's these cassette tapes so are they acted like are they told like a story it's just told because this one uh actually i think maybe all of them they're all narrated by one person because in this Uh. case it is just this woman's cassette tapes to you know sometimes there's other sound effects and you might hear other voices but it's just this woman she's great she is awesome um in this so i don't know you might this could be one that we put in the bank for another time but it is i was so impressed with like and kind of inspired by it i was like this is like a new kind of art form that i feel like i want to know more about yeah it is intriguing like i i uh it is weird that we don't have more of that Mm -hmm. like a a radio guys like a radio drama but like a modern take on a radio drama a radio play uh i think is the like exactly what this is in the tradition of um, but yeah, it does, it takes it a different place because it can, you know? Yeah, right. Cool. Yeah. Um, all right, so I have a suggestion by Jim, just Jim. A short story by Ryunosuke Akutagawa uh, called Kappa. A 1927 novella about... Uh, a psychiatric patient who travels to the land of a kappa. Kappa are like mythical creatures in, in Japanese uh, mythology. And 
Yeah, it's supposed to be like a, uh, a maybe satire of the time, the particular era of, of Japanese culture. But yeah, I take it not on your list. Not on my list. Uh, cool. I didn't have that. I don't think I looked into it. Uh, so The Stranger, Zach Lacey, Kim Wu, The Stranger. He also suggested Synecdoche, New York. Okay. Which I think would might be fun to do. We could have Jesse Graham on. He's the number one fan of that movie. You saying you saying the name of that movie reminds me of the last time we talked about it, where you were insistent that I was the one pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> think so, <laughs> but maybe it sounds like something uh, I would do. But, uh, <laughs> the Stranger is my actual. Okay, uh, it's funny. Back. I didn't even re- like. I must. My eyes must have glossed over it because I remember him talking about Synecdoche and the Kafka on the shore. Um, and I just skipped right over uh, The Stranger. Yeah, I think The Stranger just belongs on our list. Like, what? Um, if people want us to do it, like, we should just do it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. TL recommended just a topic, uh, the concepts of sacredness and holiness in the modern Western world. And just him saying that made me realize, like, I'm, I am interested in the notion of what is sacred and what. Have you ever read the book or heard of the book, The Sacred and Profane by Mircea Eliad? I've heard of it, but yeah, yeah, I don't know anything about it. So there's just interesting literature on what is sacred and what like what role the sacred plays in culture. And I thought that's just a fun topic that I I would actually like it as an excuse to dive into some of the the work on it, psychology and. If there's like a specific text, and that would work, then yeah, or that would work, yeah, that would be. Uh, I would like to do that. I mean, we could also just decide to do that. Doesn't yeah, have to go true. on the list, but I think it could. All right, I have one that uh, that I've been wanting to do for a long time, even though I don't think I've pressed it to you. Uh, in, uh, ben Linder, Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. This is... Uh, uh, Nikki just read this book. Really? Um, Did she like it? Yeah, she liked it. She read it, I think, because a lot of readers of Piranesi recommended it as a, as a yeah. book that, that was similar. Um, yeah. I haven't I read it. I've read like three other things by Calvino and I've loved all of them. And I think that would be really fun. If, uh, Who recommended it? Ben Linder. Oh, yeah. It's right here. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would put that on the list, actually. All right. The last thing that I have is actually, I don't even know why I put it on the list, but Ian Bowes suggested a movie called Captain Fantastic. And I think and he says, not sure if it's artsy enough for Tamler, but he really liked it. And I just looked it up and I think I just wanted to watch it. <laughs> I don't know if it would make an episode. <laughs> but on the off chance that you had it, uh, I figured I would say it. <laughs> I don't have it. I do have something in my alternates uh, from Ian Bozzi, which is Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy. But mm. uh, like, I don't know anything about that movie. Yeah, I just happened to look it up and it, it looks kind of interesting. Uh, well... Because Steve Zahn, a.k.a. Tamler, according to my daughter. <laughs> is, is I'll take it. He's in the new Gemstones. The new uh, season of Gemstones. Sweet. sweet. What Any alternates? Have? Like, uh, Just let me run just a few things by you uh, that people said that I was definitely intrigued by. Blood Meridian, you're oh, yeah. probably done with it. I feel close. no, I haven't. I haven't been able to listen to it in in, in a couple of days. So, yeah, I actually thought, well, we're both reading it, so I think we'll just do that, right? At some point, we'll probably just do that. Yeah, yeah. 
the Wilford Sellers philosophy and the scientific image of man, uh, the, that's where he talks about the uh, manifest and scientific image. Kind of a classic philosophy paper. It's been a while for me, but it is a, if we go back to like the classic series. Desi suggested Society of the Spectacle by Guy Debord. It's a book, but it's pretty short. I'd, n- I'd never heard on it. It seems, heard it seems it. pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then I really liked the idea of a Shakespeare play. You know, like Hamlet or Macbeth or something like that. It might need to be, we need a little time because we'll probably have to watch something and read it, but all right. <laughs> all right, so what do we have? Um, okay, Farid, we both had Farid. We both had Solaris, movie, yeah. film. And did we have, did you, oh yeah, Solaris and then a chapter from William James and... Yeah. Um, Invisible Cities, you said you might want to put yeah. on the list. The sure. Stranger. Did you... I would that anime series sounds interesting. It's to like depending on how long it is. Yeah, actually, don't know. That's a good question. Maybe I'll uh, look that up in our break. Okay, so where are we? We have uh, William James Chapter Six. We have Invisible Cities. We have um, Solaris. Solaris. Uh, did you want to put the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction? Yeah, I mean, I wish I knew a little bit more about it, but yeah, yeah like yeah, it's, it's weird that you're true. like trying to like get the Marxist text on. <laughs> no, I just you know I just I like I'm it. Just, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I would definitely though because um, yeah. I feel like if we put Neon uh, Genesis on there, it's just gonna win. <laughs> You think? Really? I, I, you know, I don't know. It's not we our Reddit. Lot. That's you know? true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would be willing to risk putting it on if you were. So there, uh, let's see. How many episodes are we talking about? Um, right now. There's like 20. There's like, yeah. There's a lot. That, that, that maybe, might maybe be a little tough to get Yeah, to no, it. that's a little tough. <laughs> I think I'll just watch it. And then if it's like so awesome. That, yeah, that, uh, then I'll, I'll, I'll it sounds like I'll like it, so. Oh, the stranger was another one. The mushrooms yeah. we we agreed on. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not gonna put the mushrooms. On. Um, but stranger, I feel like we're since we're gonna. I mean, I feel like we're gonna do it. Um, anyway, should we give right. them a chance to pick something else? Yeah, uh, like I like maybe Invisible Cities works better as the choice there. You know. Uh, yeah. Do you think Within the Wires would actually be a good episode? Like, I'd be I willing to, to give it a do. shot. Yeah, okay. I do. Let's, let's do that. Okay, Within the Wires, Solaris Invisible Cities. So, I feel like we're going to do Blood Meridian. I feel like we're going to do The Stranger. But we could put one on the list. Just It would it would definitely push up the schedule of us doing one of those if we want. <laughs> All right. Let's do Blood Meridian. Okay. If people want to continue the Summer of Cormac McCarthy. Summer of Cormac McCarthy. All right. We got our list. Pluralistic Universe, Chapter 6, Solaris, movie and book. Let's specify that. Yeah. Movie and book. Invisible Cities, Within the Wires, and Blood Meridian. Cool. It's a good list. That's an interesting list. I like it. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody. I'm sure we're going to do probably 10 of these, at least, at some point. I feel like we have an obligatory apology to make to the denial of deaf people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's. Uh, I mean, at one point, I think I should just reread that and, and see what I think. We need to be like psychoanalyzed for why we keep putting that off. You know, <laughs> I don't think I do. I think I don't even need the unconscious. <laughs> That's to- true. That <laughs> should right. be our last episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It should. Hopefully one of us doesn't die all of a sudden. As, yeah. as, you know. <laughs> That'll make it hard to deny death <laughs> at that point. <laughs> the acceptance of death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. My dogs are going crazy. So let's uh, take a break and we'll come back to talk about Cormac McCarthy, the Kakulia problem. Kakulia? Kakule. Kakule. Kakule problem. That's my best guess. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, every so often you come to some moment in life, that moment of truth, you have to make this choice, and it's a big one. It could be about your career, a relationship, family, whatever it is. Your choice is going to have a huge effect on your life and maybe the type of person you're going to become, and it's hard. Sometimes you can feel paralyzed by that choice in the moment. There's not going to be some study that tells you what to do. The situation is too complex, too particular to you for that. Therapy can help you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate life and help you not get bogged down in cycles of self-doubt and indecision so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. Trusting yourself to make decisions is like anything. The more you practice it, the easier it gets. Therapy can be hugely beneficial for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, how to get the self-confidence you need to make those big decisions come what may. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. So, if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks as always to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the episode where we like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for interacting with us, for supporting us in uh, all of the ways that you do. We really appreciate getting messages from you. We love reading your tweets. Um, 
in any way that you want to contact us, please feel free. You can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. We read every single email. We don't always have time to reply, but we still appreciate it. You can tweet to us at Tamler at Peas or at Very Bad Wizards or X to us or whatever the fuck you're supposed to do now with the rebrand. You can go to Reddit and join our subreddit and interact with some perhaps like-minded folks. Uh, Reddit.com slash r slash Very Bad Wizards. Be nice to Tamler when you're there. Say some nice things. He appreciates it. And uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Very Bad Wizards. You can leave us feedback by rating us on Apple Podcasts and perhaps even leaving a review. We appreciate those. You can also listen and subscribe to us on Spotify. And you can even rate us there, I believe. If you want to support us in more tangible ways, there are a few ways that you can do that. You can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal, or you can uh, buy some swag, uh, buy t-shirts, mugs. Finally, you can join our lively, thriving Patreon community by supporting us at patreon.com slash verybadwizards. If you do so, there's a variety of tiers. There's a $1 and up tier where you per episode where you get all of our episodes ad-free and you get now seven compilations of my Beats Without Rhymes, just a compilation of beats I put together that I've made for the episodes. Um, I just put one out recently, number seven. If you join us at $2 and up, you get access to our bonus episodes, our entire back catalog of, I don't know how many we have, but probably hundreds of hours by now of bonus episodes, including our Deadwood series that we've continued doing, The Ambulators. Um, If you join us at $5 and up, you get to vote on an episode topic we, you've just heard have narrowed down our episode topics uh, that have been suggested to us by all of our Patreon listeners. And we're going to let our $5 and up supporters vote as soon as we get the poll up. You can also see some of my intro psych videos, some of Tamler's lectures on Play-Doh, and you'll get access to our Brothers Karamazov five-part series. And finally, at $10 and up, you get to ask us anything once a month. We do a video and we release the audio as well for the $2 and up supporters. But $10 and up, you get to ask us questions and we really appreciate that as well. We're getting ready to do that. So thank you to everybody for all of the ways that you support us. We really appreciate it. We genuinely would not continue to do this for this long, almost 11 years now. Um, if it weren't for listeners like you who reach out and keep us going. Thank you. And now back to the episode. All right, let's get to our main segment. So uh, like Tamler said, we're on a McCarthy kick. And one of our listeners suggested this essay, his only nonfiction uh, work, Kekule's Problem. So apparently this was uh, written during his time at the Santa Fe Institute. I didn't know this at all, that that McCarthy uh, spent like on and off 20 years at this nonprofit uh, research institute. And I, like, it sounds like he was just a junkie of, of, I don't know, cognitive science, just science in general. And he, he wrote this in 2017, published it in Nautilus. And I guess that's it. That's the only um, thing he's ever done uh, on, yeah. on the nonfiction side of things. Yeah. And so, okay, I'll give it just a quick overview uh, of the article. Obviously, we'll put a link. I think it's short enough that everybody should read it. There's no excuse. It's really uh, nice to read, too. And it's really good to read. Yeah. yeah. The title, Kekule's Problem, comes from the chemist Kekule, who was famously 
um, known for discovering the structure of the benzene molecule by having a dream uh, in which he saw a snake eating its own tail and woke up and was like, oh, that's the the structure of, of the benzene ring. And McCarthy really wants to talk about two huge, two of the biggest ideas I think you can in psychology. One is what is the unconscious and what is it doing? Like what work does the unconscious do? And two, what is language? How did it emerge? Why and what is its relation to the unconscious? And I think central to to this essay is why is it the case that the unconscious mind doesn't seem to communicate in language? So the way he puts it is why couldn't his unconscious mind, upon pondering the problem of the benzene molecule, just say, just present to him the solution. It's a bloody ring, like it's a ring, uh, instead of giving him some weird imagery of a snake eating its own tail. I think that summarizes the gist of it. Yeah, and, and the answer to that question uh, yeah. <laughs> is that the unconscious has been around much longer than language and it's not used to communicating through language. It doesn't like language really and it doesn't trust language. Um, In part, McCarthy suggests just because like it's such a newcomer on the scene that uh, the way he describes it it's like some uppity like part of the brain it, you know it's like it's like the definite it's, <laughs> it's the first nouveau smart that's how the uh, I, I love that aspect of it uh, there's this deep yeah. respect for the ancient roots of the unconscious and yeah less respect yeah. for the, <laughs> the newcomer yeah and you know, the little that I have read of Cormac McCarthy, I'll read, like his fiction, you can just see how his his writing in Blood Meridian is just suffused with with imagery that that see, feels primal. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, he's a slave to language, right? He's a wordsmith, so so he has to find a way to communicate that those those ideas, that imagery into words. Yeah, one of the things that. I wanted to ask you actually is like, is this kind of view, is it going to resonate with writers? You know, like, because writers are constantly trying to come up with a way of describing something and they can think about it forever. And then all of a sudden it appears uh, to them and there's like, oh, that's it. And then they put it down. But I think his idea is it doesn't appear in language. Language is a way of then expressing the kind of epiphany that you already had. Uh, The actual process of thinking in any discipline is largely an unconscious affair. Language can be used to sum up at some point at which one has arrived, a milepost, so as to gain a fresh starting point. But if you believe that you actually use language in the solving of problems, I wish you would write to me and tell me how you go about it. It seems like something, this idea of language not solving the problem, language just being the post hoc way of articulating how you've solved it is, I think, maybe something that would be attractive to a writer. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And like an interpreter of the thought too, right? Like yeah. it's it's actively trying to uh, interpret the the feelings, the images that the unconscious is providing in a way that, that can be communicated. It's interesting, you know. It's not a non-controversial opinion. Um, there are people who do. I I kind of am one of these people that that do just buy that that of course the thinking that we do isn't in language. You know, we can have an inner voice that tells us something, but when we're thinking dog, we don't think the word dog necessarily. We just think of a dog. 
Right. And uh, so Fodor called this mental ease. Uh, um, Pinker talks about this as the language of thought. And so all of the thinking that's going on by the, in the unconscious, I think it's easy to trick ourselves into thinking we were, think, we were thinking in a propositional way about a problem linguistically, because that's the only way we can tell somebody what we were thinking. Right. But probably we don't. And it's just the stuff that, that, that we need to generate words to communicate, not, not to think. And what's interesting is how this can even be true of certain language-based problems, which is kind of what he's talking about, yeah. right? So we were talking off-air about playing that spelling bee, which is completely about language. The whole point of that game is to utilize language in a skillful way, and yet it sometimes feels like the unconscious is the thing that's solving that problem. The thought isn't in language because uh, it just kind of appears in your head. The problem problem solving nature of the unconscious, like it just really, I I don't need a study to tell me this, yeah. but stepping aside from a problem when you've been thinking about it so much is, I think, does wonders for you. And I think that sometimes the language, or at least the explicit thought, whether it's language or not, I don't know, but the explicit effortful trying to solve a problem just gets in the way. Right. Like it seems to be getting in the way. So the fact that your your mind is doing something when you're not actively attending to the thing is kind of crazy. It's not just that the unconscious, like this is a, a particularly interesting view of what the unconscious mind is doing. It's not just like you have in our notes, like is this a Freudian view of the unconscious? I guess, but Freud thinks of it as much dumber than this. Freud thinks that the unconscious mind is just desire fulfillment, right? Like it's just there to try to um, push you toward the things that animals need. And then your ego, your largely conscious mind is filtering all that stuff. But McCarthy is saying, no, like I think that even your unconscious mind can do mathematics. Like I think it's actively problem solving in a much smarter way than I think Freud would characterize it. Yeah, so like a lot of his examples are things where you need language to even understand the problem in the first place. And yeah. the only way the problem can be solved is through language. And yet it's that little, that middle thing, like how you get from this language-based <laughs> problem to the language-based solution that is, I think, where the unconscious does its work. And then it's this question of, well, how do we gauge that? How do you judge to what extent? I mean, it, it's certainly not like this, that you solve most problems by just kind of, all right, let me put all the facts I know in order, and then I'm going to go through them one by one, see what they entail. That's not how we solve most problems. It's something that just kind of appears, like we somehow get it, and we have no idea how that happened. I guess the, if the controversy then is over the stuff that happened right before then, even though it's not like something that can be explicitly laid out as a chain of reasoning, is language still somehow implicated? Yeah, I don't know. Like, it seems like if a problem has to get to me somehow by being communicated to me, then it has to be the case that language is involved, right? You can't give me your mentalities, your your thoughts without language. You have to put them into language. You communicate to, to me, but it does feel like maybe we're translating it like online. When we talked about split brain patients, I think we talked about this, right? But language is uh, lateralized heavily. So it's on one side of the brain and it's split brain patients 
you can show that they're perceiving stuff on one side of the brain that's non-linguistic. But it does seem like what's going on is it needs, in order to communicate, it has to kind of send stuff over to language and then like output it, like input and output, you know? McCarthy just ad- just admits that this is something that, we, like it's not even clear how we could get an answer. So he says, it might even solve math without using numbers. The truth is that there is a process here to which we have no access. It is a mystery opaque to total blackness. Right. Which and almost is just by yeah. definition, right? By definition, right. Yeah. 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 So, so okay. Like, do you want to talk more about the unconscious? Do you want to move to language? I want to know what, where exactly is this debate to the extent that you know about it? This idea of uh, thought mostly proceeding without language and language, like wh- how accepted is that view? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, it's super hard to know, like, the intersection of the unconscious and and language and the stuff of thought. There are hardcore language people who think that all of the thinking that is advanced, that makes us, like, characteristically human, is sort of because of language. Like, the emergence of language unlocked that. And there's probably some truth to that. But then there are some people who think, look, we symbolically represent things with no need for language. And I think that McCarthy is coming at this by saying, look, like, obviously... Every other animal on earth doesn't have language. Yeah. And clearly they are doing things that require thought and problem solving and they're representing things. Um, that they can't speak doesn't mean that they can't think. That would be a mistake. Right. Um, so we're this kind of weird quirk where we have all of that stuff, all of that mechanisms to process information about the world around us without words. And then all of a sudden, like 150,000 years ago, all of a sudden, language pops up, emerges seemingly out of nowhere in human beings. And now we have like two systems that 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 seem to be working in concert. But obviously, the unconscious mind doesn't need language for thinking to occur. So what is what is going on with our reliance on language? So, so there's that question. There's, this, there's a completely other set of, I guess, findings, discussion in psychology about problem solving in the unconscious that I think brings to bear on this, which is a lot of work showing that uh, your mind is somehow engaged, just like what we were saying with the word games, the spelling bee, your mind is engaged in problem solving. And sometimes people at least claim to show experimentally that if you distract somebody from the problem, when they come back to it, they actually make better judgments, better decisions. They, they solve these problems. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of studies, probably the kind of studies you would hate, <laughs> yeah. because uh, I'll give you an example of like one kind of judgment. So suppose that you are trying to decide I don't know, what car to buy. Um, so I give you the information about the cars, like a, a list of cars and their characteristics. In one condition, people are told like, okay, think hard about all of these attributes. Do that thing that you said no one ever really does. Um, but like to weigh the pros and cons of each of these attributes. And then another group of people are given the information and they're distracted. They're told to like work on something completely different. And then at the end of whatever amount of time is given, both of those people make decisions. And then somehow people rate the quality of those decisions. Like there, there is like a whole bunch of different methods where you could say like how satisfied were you in the long term, or you could say like how objectively good is it or how much does it agree with other people and different problems will have different ways of determining what's good or bad. But the, the 
claim at least is that when people are distracted, oftentimes they actually make better judgments. Yeah. Um, and therefore the brain is doing some important work behind the scenes. I think I, I might have problems with the study design or the measurement tools or and all of that, but I totally buy that conclusion that when you put a lot of research, read every review, learn all about the specs versus just sometimes <laughs> you're, you just kind of know which thing you want to buy and you're going to be happier if you do the latter. Never mind all the bandwidth that you save by not expending that kind of conscious energy. Right. Like I, I totally buy that. I buy too. I mean, particularly when like some of them are are seem to me to be so obviously the case we're thinking about them would wreak havoc on on your decision making process. Like if you were to give me two aesthetic like things, so so you were to ask me two posters that I want to have, two paintings that I wanted to hang up in my room, and you either like either just sort of made the decision without thinking explicitly about the attributes of them, or I like explicitly was like, oh, the colors and the contrast and the whatever, yeah. then I think, of course, I'd be happier with my gut judgment um, because my gut is the thing that's looking every day at the painting. <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's yeah. the thing that we don't realize because we identify with our language-based thought and that's who we think of as us. But like, there's clearly this other part of us that is very well connected to how happy we feel, how annoyed right. we are, that um, that part too needs to be happy. In fact, it's probably much more important that that part is happy with your choice. I don't know if this is related to the McCarthy thing or not, but I think like I am happiest when I either have my gut tell me what to buy or like one person. Like anytime I have a tech, yeah. I have a tech question about like what iPhone to buy. I just text you. You're like, yeah, I get that one. Perfect. That's all yeah. I need. You know, going to a restaurant and you just want the waiter to just be like, take that one. You know, right. that's all you need. So I do think there's this other, there's just a lot of noise that our, or our language based thought does that we just don't want. It's like, we're not built for that. We're not built to like stress about what TV or a set of speakers or something to get. So like, we just want to be told either by our own unconscious or by somebody else just not us deliberating we want to be told what to do yeah i think you're totally right and i think we really do i don't know especially us as like academics um so much of what we think has to be converted to language to communicate it like some so much of the the like work that we're doing is like to prepare for a lecture or to write a paper or to do a podcast that it's it is hard to to separate all of that work. And I think a lot of, you know, clarifying the things that you're thinking with language is important for the sake of communicating your thoughts to other people. But we probably way overemphasize it when it comes to making decisions for ourselves. But I think even when you're talking about preparing a lecture, that's actually the example I was searching for, but didn't find until you mentioned it. That is often, even though, again, you are presented with like language-based thing that you have to interpret and then you have to in language describe it to other people give your kind of interpretation uh, so much of any lecture that i do is just like okay i, I got it like i figured yeah. out like it's it's how mccarthy describes coming up with the idea for this essay yeah. like he just he went to bed and then he woke up and he just knew it he knew what to do that is how it works. So it just comes up like I, I figure it out. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. Because you need like an angle and then the angle just comes. Yeah, no, 
Totally. The phenomenology, as you describe it, is is very true. I mean, there's a lot of work that does go into the language that I'm using. That's mm. true. But when you're struggling with like how to organize something mm. so that uh, students will understand the story that you're trying to tell or the, the point you're trying to make, it just sometimes... I don't know how to describe it. Falls like into falls place. into yeah, falls like falls into, into like the almost like an outline, but it's not a real outline because then you have to do the work of yeah explicitly outlining it. But you know, you yeah. just know this is how it all fits together. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But that reminds me, there's so there's the other work where people in creativity, and they call it incubation in creativity, where uh, people are um, given like a problem to solve, and then they they. Some people are given the opportunity to sleep on it. So some people actually report having dreams that has this, that have the solution to it. This other aspect of the essay that we haven't really talked about, his dismissal of the view that language is an evolutionary adaptation that it yeah. has been selected for. He denies that. I guess he takes the Chomsky side yeah. of this debate and devotes a good chunk of the essay to talking about why. I I had a couple questions. First of all, where's the status of that debate? Because I know Paul and Steven Pinker, uh, you put in a BBS paper that they did on this very yeah. question. So first of all, what's the where, where is that debate at right now? But then second, why, I, I'm a little unclear how this is relevant to the larger argument that McCarthy's making. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure why it's important that he, that he make this argument. I think that what he's trying to say, the, the reason that it's important is if it's the case that language just all of a sudden emerged, then it makes sense that it's not, it's not something that evolved slowly alongside the rest of the mind. Right. right? It, it, it didn't have that time to integrate itself I think I think that's what what he would say. I think that's why he's hammering, trying to hammer this this uh, point home. Okay, so if it's if language is a million years old, which I don't think many people think it is, but if it was, then yeah, like our brain and language would kind of co-evolve. But if language yeah. was a hundred thousand years old and it was a spandrel, yeah, versus whether a spandrel is like something that is a byproduct of um, some other. Uh, like evolutionarily adaptive uh, system, whether it's a spandrel or whether it, uh, you know, was adaptive, does that matter to what he's saying? So I think only in as much as if it's adaptive, that means that it was adapted for and would have occurred slowly. But I think you're, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, what if it turns out that language was around for 2 million years? Would he just drop this line of thinking? I don't think so. <laughs> but, the, but that like, I get, I get if it's yeah. 2 million years, cause our, our brains and our just uh, uh, our species has done a lot in two million years, less so evolutionarily speaking in 100,000 years. Yeah. The, the idea, as you pointed out, that he's saying is like if we're like two million years old as a species, the unconscious has been without language for all but a eye blink of that, yes, as he says. Exactly. And yeah. so the unconscious like knows how to deal with us and how to get our organism through life. And it's like 
the language is like some annoying little brother or something like that. That is <laughs> like trying to, it's like constantly bothering you and like pulling at your yeah. pant hey, leg. Hey, and hey like, what do you think? Yeah. What are you doing? What are you doing? And the unconscious, like, I got this. Don't worry about it. Just shut the fuck up. You know, uh, <laughs> right. you know, what's weird about this is language is the thing that help that gives us the problems in the first place. You yeah. know? So it's yeah. like, when he says like, thousands of species have had perfectly fine time living without language yeah i think that's true but all of the so much of what we have and our ability to cooperate and coordinate and communicate is only because of language all of the modern problems we face seem to have some connection to our ability to to have language so i do love though back to what you said like there is he mccarthy is making this into a story about like a Cain and Abel. Like it's like a two, there's characters here. Like yeah. the language is obviously amazing and awesome, but there is like either, either the, the little brother or some deep resentment, like the Cain and Abel, like the, the unconscious clearly language has dom dominates so much of, of what it means to be human nowadays that the unconscious is salty i don't know <laughs> see i see more that he thinks like uh the unconscious is like alice Waringen and <laughs> language is like some hoopla head that comes into the gym you know it's gonna raise another headache for al you know and yeah. now that's just another thing for him to deal with but um this idea of the unconscious not trusting language <laughs> and not wanting like that's why it doesn't present the solution in the language it goes through some uh more mysterious means to give us the answer it's because like it doesn't it doesn't trust language and i thought that this aspect of it is pretty interesting because his idea is that language has its like good points, but also it is an obstacle to understanding the world. He said, facts, does the unconscious only get facts from us? I guess meaning language us, or does it have the same access to our sensorium that we have? You can do whatever you like with the us and the are and the we, I did. At some point, the mind must grammaticize facts and convert them to narrative. The facts of the world do not, for the most part, come in narrative form. We have to do that. So what do you make of that passage? Yeah, I like. I mean, I like the thought that, that the, the facts of the world as they present themselves are obviously processed by, by some aspect of our mind that doesn't require language. And so that we are converting them um, to turn them into narratives. So he says we have to do that. Yeah. Now, obviously animals don't, but maybe just the human condition is that we do. We're, because so much of our time is spent thinking about how to tell somebody else something. Right. Maybe, or maybe even tell ourselves something. Maybe it doesn't even require that communication that we we're just like converting all of the facts of our life into a story that we find pleasing to tell ourselves just to conceptualize the problem just to be able to think about it in a conscious way uh if we want to put it into the realm of conscious deliberation we have to convert facts to narratives and clearly that is often useful the whole Kukulia problem couldn't have happened if we didn't do that. But I think yeah. there's a cost to doing that because it's like modeling. Once you start to conceptualize 
the world and divide it up into concepts, you are going to lose some aspect of reality, some aspect of the truth. And maybe it's the unconscious doesn't trust language because of that. Because it's a liar. Yeah, I think that's right, or at least it's what he's trying to argue. And central to what he's saying about language is that language fundamentally is is representing one thing, is saying one thing is something else. Yeah. Like that, that where the unconscious might just take in that thing, obviously there's still representation, but language is this way of, of, of representing something so concretely that is clearly something else. Like it's taking the place of that thing. And like, as you're saying, something gets lost when you see a pretty landscape and then you write down a description of that, like there is uh, a lot of information that is getting completely lost in that description. Right. And, and so you, what you, you would really trust is just the straight up perception of the scene. That representation, that middleman of language has the power to mislead, um, right. which is, as I think about it, it's like so much I think of what you are often saying about uh, this stuff. It's like the the representation of the thing is degraded from from yes. the thing to the point where we can't trust it. Exactly. Sorry, Nate Silver, but you, <laughs> <laughs> you can't model everything in numbers and language. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by Rocket Money. Let me tell you a little story. So um, when I was trying to make some podcast art for the podcast that I started with Paul Bloom. I signed up for a cool service that allowed you to customize logos. It's basically like an easy way to custom design a logo. Well, it was free for 30 days, but after that, it started charging you 10 bucks a month. If you're like me, you will relate to this. I only needed was to use it for the first, whatever, a few days retrieve my assets, and then cancel. But of course I didn't. I completely forgot that I had subscribed to it. And had it not been for Rocket Money, I would have continued paying for this particular service and would have spent over the course of a year uh, over $100. Rocket Money saved me from that. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions but it also monitors your spending and helps you lower your bills. And it's all in one dashboard. Essentially, it uh, allows you to put in all of your financial information from your accounts, and it provides you in one easy place with an at-a-glance snapshot of how your finances are doing, how much money you've been spending for the month, how much money you have saved or invested. It's great. It's something that I really, really needed, and I'm so glad that I have it. Because Again, if you're like me at all, you probably just don't even realize that you're paying for some things. And it's a little bit aversive to go through all of your credit card statements and try and your bank statements and try to look specifically at places where you can save money. Rocket Money does that for you. So stop throwing your money away, cancel your unwanted subscriptions, and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com bbw. Once again, that's rocketmoney.com slash VBW. And the last thing I'll say is that over 3 million people have signed up to use Rocket Money, and it saved the average person who has signed up uh, $720 a year. So maybe that can be some motivation to give it a try. 
last time. Rocketmoney.com slash VBW. Our thanks to Rocket Money for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. I just want to read this uh, this little uh passage. He says, the evolution of language would begin with the names of things. After that would come descriptions of these things and descriptions of what they do. The rule is that they are charged with describing the world. There's nothing else to describe. The role of language in naming things, I think, is already starting to, to degrade the representation that the unconscious has been used to, to having. Right. There might almost be something platonic about this. It's like, although, actually... I don't know. I take that back. I would have to think about that more. But, uh, well, he certainly has the idea of a degraded reality, the more particular you get. But I actually think he might think it goes the other way, that language is the thing that's going to help us get to the true essence of things. Well, this is where I think it's an actual paradox for a writer like McCarthy, or at least a real dilemma about whose side to be on here. Because clearly, I think he is using language to the best of his ability to try to communicate things that I think he thinks are more primitive and more real. Yeah. And that's the only way he could get those things into our mind. Yeah. So if he could bypass that, maybe he would be like into that, but he can't. So he knows that the better that he uses language, like the better he's going to be able to communicate the richness of some of these concepts. And what's really funny is like, as you were talking and you said, like, I don't think he says it explicitly. I couldn't put into words what I thought about this essay uh, until maybe now that there is so much in this essay that I think is unsaid that I then processed about it, like what he's actually trying to say. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. So it's like, I don't know if it's a paradox or it's these things working in concert, but he says, like you say, like, we need language to explain things to other people, to get them to understand something. And often we'll go to an analogy to do that. Like if you've taught, like having a good analogy to explain something, it gets them to understand it in a way that they absolutely didn't before. But I think McCarthy might say, sure, but the, uh, unconscious processes helped you come up with that analogy, helped you know it was a good analogy. And they, when they get it, that's all unconscious too. The aha moment. Yeah, Yeah, the aha moment is also unconscious. And it's like grokking. Like like grokking is just something that happens. Mm -hmm. And we push each other with language so that we'll get it. And then when we finally do, it's not like we solved the math problem by carrying the one or whatever. It's just like, oh, Ah, got it. Uh, let me read this section because I think that he's saying what we're trying to say. It says, when you pause to reflect and say, quote, let me see, how can I put this? Your aim is to resurrect an idea from this pool of we know not what and give it a linguistic form so that it can be expressed. It is the this that one wishes to put that is representative of this pool of knowledge whose form is so amorphous. If you explain this to someone and they say that they don't understand, you may well seize your chin and think some more and come up with another way to put it. Or you may not. (laughs) When the physicist Dirac was complained to by students that they didn't understand what he'd said, Dirac would simply repeat it verbatim. (laughs) It's it's funny that like both strategies can work. It's like the second (laughs) one would just give your unconscious a little more time to get it. (laughs) The his strategy. But yeah. It's true. Like, that is what you're trying to do. You are making an appeal to their unconscious to make a connection that they have not yet made. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so I wanted to get back to though that you were asking about whether or not there is like some some debate still about whether language uh, was adapted, um, and I you know I don't know like I'm not an expert in this but I was reading I was going crazy reading this afternoon about some of this language stuff and it's insane because of course there's no way to solidly answer the question right. but I'll tell you a few things that I thought were interesting so one of the biggest reasons why people think that it didn't uh, evolve as an adaptation is that unlike so many other systems, biological systems, there doesn't seem to be an in-between state where uh, some some species, say, have a little bit of grammar or a little uh, bit yeah. of like recursive and, right. and like the others. Eye, there would like be the eye, exactly. Yeah. 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 You have like some photos, you have some animals that just have just basic photosensitivity yeah. um, and then you have something as complex as us and you can see the in between. In fact, I think Darwin himself noted this when he was looking at the eyes of various animals showing like this, the steps at which you could, the evolution could build an eye as complicated as this. It seems like for humans, it just appeared. No, there is nothing like it. There's obviously there's some, as as McCarthy says, um, there's some animals that do verbal signaling of calls, but the, there's nothing like what we have. There's no intermediary um, thing, or even close, and no record of any intermediary. Exactly. Thing. And, and I, I think it, Paul and Steve Pinker in their in their article back in the day say like, look, we just don't have enough evidence from species that might have had some in between. Just because we can't see it now doesn't mean it wasn't there. Um, but yeah. true, fair enough. But his idea is that it spread like a virus. It just like <laughs> hopped on the scene and it finds some place in the brain that isn't used that much and just spreads to everybody else. Yeah, which is incredible. It's incredible when you think about what it would have taken for something like that to spread. But you know, when he was talking about language only being around 150,000 years, I was reading up on this. Mm -hmm. And that number, that estimate probably comes from, he doesn't say, but it probably comes from something that he mentioned earlier, which is that in order for us to produce the sounds that we produce that are languages across the, yeah. all humans, the larynx had to drop significantly in the throat. And we're the only animal that has that. So we have the ability to make all of these different sounds. And so what you can do is you can look at the fossil record and you can tell when this happened in humans. And that turns out to be plus or minus, you know, a hundred and something thousand years ago. Um, and, and so that's where people get the estimate. Cause other than that, like there's no really good way to try to figure out when this would have started. Right. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, there's a 20% chance that I died because of that, uh, evolutionary adaptation. Like, choking. <laughs> like I crazy. almost choke so often. <laughs> like, I really think that might be how I die. It's just a question <laughs> of when I'm, I'm on the unconscious side. We have one of these things in our house that are like a, it's like a little, um, it looks like a little mask, like an oxygen mask on one end and like a pump on the other. And so if someone's choking, you just put it over their head and like do just squeeze and then it'll like suck it out. Really? So that, basically, so you don't have to do the Heimlich. Yeah. You should get one of these. Oh my God. I'm definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but I am with you. I choke on like my own saliva. I can <laughs> it's just a really bad, like Think about what how important this adaptation or this ability was that we are the evolution was like yeah you know they might die from like eating a Lego when they're six months old. They'll be able to do a sonnet. So. <laughs> They'll have podcasts. <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> really, the evolutionary pressure for podcasts is what explains all of this stuff. Uh, before we leave, the is language like has it evolved or not? Like what? what like where do you stand on that? Does Paul still? 
Like, is he still committed to the view that language was selected for and isn't a spandrel? I don't know. I meant to text him before we record, but I didn't get around to it. I suspect that he would just because it's his most influential paper. He can't just abandon that line of reasoning. (laughs) Um, I kind of am convinced by the views that it does. Now, that it like instantaneously appearing or whatever in evolutionary terms, I guess, means thousands upon thousands of years. But I'm kind of convinced by the fact that there that there doesn't seem to be this in-between state in other animals. Like I think I, I think it would be weird. Now maybe it's just a failure of my imagination that I can't imagine how the complexity of language could have evolved so like slowly through natural selection. Um but yeah it I like I kind of am with the Chomskys on this. Like I feel like something weird happened to our brains and we we're like, hey, combined with our throats kind of dropping in some some members of our species we could start representing this thing to for that thing like, yeah. yeah yeah and then it just took off from there and then once it because once it happens like for, forget about it as they say and then it's funny because it's like was that a fluke like just that you needed the absolute perfect set of circumstances if that's true is it like unlikely that other species are advanced because Whatever. they would have needed language to get there and it's just too improbable? I don't know. I kind of feel that way. I was reading some theories about language evolution and it's the most fun thing to read because there are all kinds of weird cockamamie theories about how this could have happened. But of course, like proof is just hard to come by. You can't do it. Yeah. But there are some conceptual constraints, right? It can't just be that like one guy developed like a... a complex enough eye that he could avoid predators and then he had kids like it need you need more than one person <laughs> to have developed this By its nature. and so there is one view that this must have happened in certain in some children that had the same mutation and they took their parents primitive vocalizations and whatever the mutation and there's like a theory about what that might have been and created a language between themselves and then we're able to kind of like brute force some of it into the parents. The idea is that it does actually happen a lot that like say twins will develop their own language. Uh, right. If you have two kids that are raised without anybody talking to them, they'll start talking to each other. Um, so then all but, you, right, that's all you need, but you do need it. You need yeah, you another need person to, who can do it. Yeah, That's also why it's a different thing confronting something with another person you know like it's a different thing us talking about no country or us processing no country because we're going to talk about it versus right. we're not totally you need another person uh like and the some ideas just need to be articulated you know i think this is maybe why you and i tend to do the thing where we watch something first without taking notes yeah and then we'll watch it to take notes because Maybe the fear is that that we're interfering with the like the the deeper communication yes. that the work of art is giving us, and, yes. and we we need to let it soak in first. Right, we need our unconscious to to do your thing, and then I'll try to interpret. But if I start trying to interpret before you've even had a chance to do your work, then it's not going to be as good. Yeah. So this is why McCarthy in like No Country for Old Men, he's yeah. giving us this vibe. Well, I'm interpreting it through the Coen Brothers, obviously, but giving this vibe like the movie just described doesn't have near the the impact that the movie scene does and and uh then at the end 
the main character, the sheriff or whatever, is telling us about his dreams. It's like it's like this struggle that he's that he's having to communicate this idea. Yeah. Like, you know, somebody I don't remember the details, but somebody gave us a nice interpretation of the two dreams. Yeah, I saw that, too. I like this idea. And McCarthy talks about this in this essay of it's almost like our unconscious isn't just the single perspective it's like a bunch of different things and so he says of the known characteristics of the unconscious its persistence is among the most notable everyone is familiar with repetitive dreams here the unconscious may well be imagined to have more than one voice he's not getting it is he no he's pretty thick what do you want to do i don't know do you want to try using his mother his mother is dead (laughs) what difference does that make (laughs) i love this idea of they're just these the elders of like you know like and they're just trying to get it through our thick you know language corrupted uh souls like they're trying to get us to understand something (laughs) like the idea that they're very frustrated by our inability to like get like what do i have to do and yeah and there's no there is no uh requirement that the unconscious mind would need something like a self-represented like an individual that persists over time um, you know, I think we've talked enough about this that I'm convinced that that personal identity has so much to do with the narrative that we, we're continuously telling us about our persistence over time and our memories. And we're like right. we're connecting all these things. The unconscious mind doesn't need that stuff. Like it's perfectly fine thinking that it's right. And that also I'm convinced that, of course, in dreams, I'm talking to eight million people, but those eight million people are all me. They're <laughs> <Right>. all me. <laughs> like That just yeah. seems right. Yeah. I think that this is something that gets hammered home in pretty much all strains of Buddhism is this idea that language and concepts, that our identity is wrapped up in those things, us identifying with thoughts, us identifying with a, a narrative about ourselves, and then the, but there's this other level, and that is not uh, uh, confined, uh, much less divided up. You know, yeah, it's, uh, totally. Let, let me read a little bit more about uh, this um, the unconscious in the dreams. He says, the unconscious, wants, the unconscious wants to give guidance to your life in general, but it doesn't care what toothpaste you use. And while the path which it suggests for you may be broad, it doesn't include going over a cliff. We can see this in dreams. Those disturbing dreams which wake us from sleep are purely graphic. No one speaks. These are very old dreams and often troubling. Sometimes a friend can see their meaning where we cannot. The unconscious intends that they be difficult to unravel because it wants us to think about them, to remember them. It doesn't say that you can't ask for help. Parables, of course, often want to resolve themselves into the pictorial. When you first heard of Plato's cave, you said about reconstructing it. So he's there he's getting into some like union collective unconscious stuff, I think. Yeah. Like, where he yes. says these dreams are old. They're old, old archetypes trying to get us to think. I, I also seems like a real nice expression of like the role of art, you know, yeah. it is to exactly do that, right? To get us to think about things. It's not trying to give us information. Plato had this idea that philosophy should be like this. It's like, no, I'm not telling you the thing to believe i am showing you how to arrive getting you to think but of course that well no right like sometimes that will be with language and sometimes it will not involve language yeah there's no you know there's no getting around the language part the minute i think the minute we start thinking consciously it's so hard to not think in terms of like how you might communicate to somebody else like there really is um yeah but it's not just the language part that that's smart in fact 
the unconscious might be a lot smarter than we think. And and that it's like language can get in the way. And I just love yeah. my favorite just kind of feature of this essay is this image of the unconscious as often frustrated, even though language like that's the that's the field we play in right now. Like it's still very frustrated that it has to work through language to yeah. get people to understand things. Yeah. Right. And, and it will often, and if, it, if it doesn't have to, it won't. Like it will right. absolutely bypass that if it can. I mean, you know, it's like the only medium we really have of communication. And like, I don't want to downplay, like it's incredible the things that we can put into other people's brains because we can structure it in language and like the, the recursive nature of language and the ability to combine uh, ideas, uh, this combinatorial feature of grammar. It's incredible. Like it's better than yeah. anything else. But that doesn't mean that we don't have like millions of years of this like you know, like this monster lurking in the deep, deepest of oceans, <laughs> waiting, waiting for us to like talk to it. Can I read the last? Or I don't know if you want yeah, to. Let's go. Let's go to the, the last, last paragraph. paragraph. Yeah. yeah. He says the unconscious seems to know a great deal. What does it know about itself? Does it know that it's going to die? What does it think about that? It appears to represent a gathering of talents rather than just one. It seems unlikely that the itch department is also in charge of math. Can it work on a number of problems at once? Does it only know what we tell it? Or more plausibly, has it direct access to the outer world? Some of the dreams which it is at pains to assemble for us are no doubt deeply reflective, and yet some are quite frivolous. And the fact that it appears to be less than insistent upon our remembering every dream suggests that sometimes it may be working on itself. And is it really so good at solving problems, or is it just that it keeps its own counsel about the failures? How does it have this understanding, which we might well envy? How might we make inquiries of it? Are you sure? <laughs> God, awesome. it's such a good <laughs> so good. It's a, it's, if you're only going to write one essay, not bad. I think there's so much in here. We've talked about a lot of it, but like I, I'm, I'm almost surprised that he raises the question of whether the unconscious has direct access to the out, outer world because he does that earlier in the essay too. And it's like, well, obviously, because it's the thing that's been around for two million years. So, uh, and he like, even calls it like the the machine a machine to operate an animal. Yeah, like that's it. So, yeah, I think it it's arguing against an idea that we filter all sensory experience through language first before it can get to our unconscious. But that doesn't seem plausible. Right, um, right. Yeah, and I like that the idea that dreams, because a lot of dreams are frivolous. I feel yeah, like I have of a course. lot of Yeah, it's not dreams. all deep, right? Yeah, it's it's not all going to be deep. And when he, even when he was saying, like, these dreams are old, like, I, my notion was, yeah, some problems are old as in existential and about, like, about life's meaning and wisdom. And some are about like don't walk over that cliff, right? Like there, or like don't let that don't, don't let that snake actually bite you. Um, those are also deeply deep part of what it means to be an animal in a world like this. What do you think of this part? Uh, and is it really so good at solving problems, or is it just <laughs> that it keeps its own counsel about the failures? The idea being like. Is it so good or do we only like know about when it solves the problems? We don't know about when it fucks us, you know? That seems right, right? That's that seems right. Like we, no one's going to write an essay about when Kukule dreamed about a bird and it had no effect on his knowledge of the benzene. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah it's uh, oh, and I also love, does it know that it's going to die? Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you would think, well, yeah, right? Like, yeah, right. Although, but, I guess, 
dogs don't know that they're going to die or do they? I don't know. I mean, maybe like right, right before you're about to kill him. Like, <laughs> they're like, Oh fuck. He's got the needle. <laughs> he got like the fucking in, needle. Or like, in no country for all men. Do you think like when the dog was in the air and, and, uh, he, he had like just loaded his gun. <laughs> he was like, Oh fuck. <laughs> like Freud would say it's so intent on survival, but maybe a lot of the times it's just like, actually not concerned with that you know i don't know i don't know let's ask we can't know that's the uh, that's the other thing it is a black box it's like chat gpt non-chat gpt (laughs) yeah (laughs) non-chat gpt (laughs) title (laughs) all right uh any other thoughts about this no uh, my only thought was i wish i'd gotten into cormac mccarthy earlier yeah well you have a lot of good shit to read i got a lot yeah all right join us next time on very bad Just a very bad wizard.